Greg, we are back. What's we up, man? We are back. 2022, uh, shit, man, a lot. Uh, crazy break. I feel like um, normally I try to take the like holidays as a time to kind of like catch up and regroup on things. And um, I felt like with COVID, it was like 2x the ability to do that because I was able to just get out of a bunch of stuff that I didn't really want to do. So it was good. I feel like I got a lot done over the break. It's good to see you, man. I f- we haven't really chatted. So, I mean, we've DM'd a little bit. So, and and we talked we talked about some articles. We we had enough of each other after that like week in Miami, right? Like it was kind of we we kind of needed like a little break. Um, you know, I fe- I felt like we'd gotten real, you know, we we spent a lot of time together. So, it was good to have a little break. It's like distance makes the heart grow fonder, right? All right, yeah, but I'm ready. Let's let's I'm, <laughs> I'm ready, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to, to be back into it. Yeah. And you know, like we have a very cool set of things to talk about um, today, which I'm personally really excited about. We, um, you know, we've both been talking over the last few days about like, what does 2022 look like? And what are our personal goals? Like we had talked about late checkout, talked about some of my personal business stuff, what we were focusing on. And a lot of it always honed around, um, you know, like predictions for the future. What does the future look like? And how are we going to actually build into that future? I always think um, like this concept and this framework you and I have talked about of like variant perception, like you have to have a variant perception of what the future looks like, i.e. like a contrarian or different perspective, um, and then go build into that. And then you're paid when you're proven correct about what that variant perception is of the future. And so you and I have jammed a lot on that. Like what are our contrarian views of what the future looks like that not a lot of people understand or believe? And how do you go build into that? Um, and that's kind of a good frame up for what we want to actually get to dive into today. So, okay. So what do you, what's on your mind? 2022 predictions, where are we going? Where's the world headed? I feel like the common wisdom today says that the world is never going to be as in person as it was pre COVID. Um, and my, like one of my more contrarian views is that I think a lot of things are going to go back to normal. Like I, I actually, I might be totally wrong in this, but I think that a lot of tech jobs are going to go back to being in person versus this like, you know, assumption that everything is going to be remote forever. And I think I saw some chart on like Hacker News or something that like 80, 90% of job openings for developers were now remote. Um, And I just think it's going to swing back in some direction. I think people are going to find it hard to manage and build culture and scale culture in a remote context. And I, I honestly, I think I'm like, a total uh, unicorn in thinking this right now because um, everyone's going to yell at me and say that I'm an idiot for for making that statement. But I still just think it's really hard to like manage wartime and and really build and scale culture in a remote context. I mean, so I've been working remote since 2014, which is a really long time. And even when I had a company in San Francisco and our team was in San Francisco, I was like, we're working remote. I think people like me who have seen like the unlock of productivity in remote, it's going to, in tech, it's going to be hard for us to go back. I think what you're going to see is a ton of like, like um, summits, like late checkout, we're a remote company, there's 50 team members. Like, how do we do a summit every month, three months, whatever? in different cool places that we can come together and get FaceTime. I think that's where, I think there's a ton of opportunity to build companies around that. 
Yeah. Um, I like that. I think that's like a cool infrastructure thing too, of like bridging the gap in between the two and how do you go build a business that allows people to, you know, basically like culture as a service, right? Like, you know, you, you need to have culture. It's so important for growing businesses. Can you create a culture as a service business? And it sort of relates in to some of the deeper stuff I wanted to get into too with our guests today. Um, just around like, polygamous careers as he called it so scott belsky is our guest today um amazing tech entrepreneur writer etc um wrote over the weekend this epic piece on um predictions right like it was 10 predictions for the near future of tech was what i think it was called and i saw it and i immediately sent it to you and was like holy shit we got to get scott on we've been wanting to have him on for a while but with covid really hard to do in person right now and getting a video team that doesn't have COVID right now is like next to impossible. Uh, we have a friend uh, who was hosting a new year's party and he was like, I can't get vendors that don't have COVID. So <laughs> I think we were stuck in that, but I was like, dude, holy shit, we got to get Scott on to go through these things because a few of them really spoke to me. A few of them I totally disagree with. Um, and I think we can have a really cool conversation with him just like jamming on a bunch of these predictions and the businesses that can be built around these ideas. Yeah, and I think uh, right before this, we actually had a community call uh, in our Discord and just got the feedback from people from the Room Where It Happens Discord. And, and just to get a sense of like, what do you think? Do you agree? Do you disagree? And it's really interesting. Like, I, you know, Scott is, I have the most amount of respect for Scott. He's, he invested in my last company, Islands. Um, you know, everything he says, I think is like gold. But at the same time, it's so interesting that, we disagree on some stuff, you disagree on some stuff, and our community disagrees on stuff. It just goes to show you that like, not everything is a gold, I should say. Not 100% is gold. Um, just because, you know, and we were talking about this earlier, like Aaron, uh, Aaron Levy and uh, Brian Chets Chesky were, are, are kind of talking about how Web3 is, you know, basically a sham. That's basically yeah. what, they're, what they're saying. Just because these leaders are titans of industry, are saying, you know, this is where the world's going to go, doesn't mean it's the gospel. So yeah. take everything well, I, with a grain of salt. I agree. I, I want to get, I actually want to talk to Scott about that too, because I think he'll have a great take on it. So let's yeah. bring him in um, and, uh, and just dive in on this stuff. Cool. Let's do it. CapChase is the financing solution for fast-growing startups. It lets companies access their revenue today so that they can reinvest in their business and grow and scale much quicker than they otherwise would be able to. Is it complex though? No, it's super easy to set up, only a couple of clicks, you can go through the process so quickly, there's no dilution ever, and if you don't draw on the money, you don't have to pay any interest against it. It's a great solution for fast-growing startups, and they should all check it out today. So if you wanna go look into it, go to capchase.com room. The saying used to be, let your game speak. With Common Stock, it's about let your gains speak. I love Common Stock, love the platform, and have really been enjoying learning from other people on there. How does it work? It's a platform for verified investment knowledge. So people are going and sharing their ideas, sharing their trades, but it's actually connected to their brokerage account. So you can see the results they're generating and see their actual track records over time. So you're learning from people not only the best investors, the Bill Ackmans, the Daniel Loeb's are on there, but also individuals who are actually going and putting their money where their mouth is on these trades, and you're learning alongside them and being taken on the journey. Is it just stocks? 
there's everything now. There's going to be stocks, there's crypto. We're in this crazy world where there's so many different investment opportunities, which just means there's so many opportunities to learn. And Common Stock is creating the platform for you to learn alongside the best. And also, as I said, let your gains speak. So to level up your investing game today, check out commonstock.com. You won't regret it. There he is, the man, the myth, the legend. What's up, guys? How you doing? Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It is, our, it is my pleasure. Well, it's funny. I was saying to Greg before you jumped on here that like basically we had been we had you like on our tier one list. I was like, we have to get Scott to come on an episode of the show. But with COVID right now, it's basically impossible to do anything in person. You know, we've been filming most of these things in person, but like, you know, let alone us all sitting in a room together and not getting COVID. But like, go find a video crew that doesn't have COVID right now. It's basically impossible. Which means we'll probably all be back together again soon. Since last, yeah, right. Last time so. Sahil and I were together recording, <laughs> I got COVID. <laughs> I didn't, by the way. We sat together for like eight episodes and I was somehow resilient and came through it. So, But with a pregnant wife at home, me doing things that expose me is like a non-starter. So <laughs> we're, we're ultimately just trying to avoid it. But um, thank you so much for joining. I mean, the... Um, it felt like a perfect opportunity to bring you on because I'm sitting around this weekend. I think it was like on Friday. It was like New Year's Day or, or New Year's Eve rather. And um, I see this thing pop up and a bunch of people are sending it to me being like, oh shit, have you seen this piece that, that Scott wrote? And I pull it open. I'm reading through it. And I texted to Greg, like, I think I was one thing into it. I texted to Greg and I just said like, dude, we have to get Scott to come on because this is epic. Um, and so now here we are like a few days later, this is the world of the internet. So a few days later, we slid in your DMS and here we are filming an episode. So I'm super stoked. Well, it is a pleasure. I mean, <clears throat> Greg and I go way back. We've had quite a few jams over the last 10 years on various topics. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is like my own little mental exercise. I try to capture some things that are interesting to me over the course of a year. And then I try to force myself, uh, under pressure to like synthesize, cut down and, uh, you know, and, and, and declare like which ones I think, you know, are really relevant, you know, and in the near future. And, and these were the ones that made the cut. So excited to discuss. Can you actually talk just for one minute about that process? Cause I think a lot of people will find mm -hmm. it interesting. Like, so during the course of the year, do you like have a document, like a living document where you're jotting things down that you're noticing and then you try to synthesize it or like what, what's your actual process around formulating these? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm a compulsive capture. Um, you know, both of the books that I published were like seven years of scribbled notes and then one year of synthesis and organization. Um, I, my feeling is that, you know, ideas are all over the place, but if you apply like a really, you know, con concentrated form of execution and organization around them, you can like 10 X the outcome of them. And so I feel like I try to treat my writing the same way. So in this case, I have a notion doc called annual forecasts and, I just think about, you know, things that I feel will be extraordinarily relevant over the next three to five years whenever I come across them. And then, you know, I try to have some like culling periods throughout the year. And then I try to, you know, take the last few weeks just to synthesize. Because to me, it's, you know, it's casting the line for a lot of interesting, you know, founders that are exploring these ideas. It's, um, it's also sending some signal to my own teams, you know, in my day job as an operator, building products for creative people about things that are interesting. And it also just... It's mental exercise. <laughs> totally. Do you pressure test them with people along the way? Like, do, do. You, do you call smart people you know and tell them to tell you you're an idiot or yeah. what are you missing? Or 
I do. Um, <clears throat> my DMs are full of debates with a number of people about a number of things, number one. Number two, I do send like a draft out to a few friends usually just to get um, their take on like what they think I should cut. So usually it's like if you had to cut two of them, which would you cut? So actually the 10 that I came out with, I had around 16 or 18 of them before. And then I just kind of cut them down that way. And then, um, and then you know, Twitter is great for just like sharing things in real time throughout the year. And if everyone, you know, dunks on it, that usually means it's actually super interesting, by the way. I know. That was what I was going to say. The <laughs> ones that like everyone agrees with aren't that interesting. No, right. It's the stuff that people are really uh, thrown off by because that's where the opportunity lies, right? Is where we are uncomfortable. Absolutely. We, we were just talking about, uh, I don't know if you saw last night, Aaron, Aaron Levy and Brian Chesky's sort of Web3. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Aaron dunk. and I have a few DMs going right now. So I... I'm, I'm, I'm aware of his views and, you know, and, and I think he's, he has a lot of great points and he's really smart. Like I, these are the people that I think bring us up to another level, you know, when we're trying to reconcile some new technology and the implications of it. So what do you, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to process it because I look at those guys as sort of inspiration, you know, inspirational, um, you know, they help build the wet, you know, current web two infrastructure and built really big businesses. Yeah. And then I look at it and I, and, and I see them just completely dunking on like, um, you know, where I'm spending all pretty much all my time. So yeah. I'm curious, yeah, I'm curious, you know, how would, how do you think about that? And, and what sort of advice do you give to, to people who, who see that and, and don't know how to digest it? Well, I mean, it's one of those moments right now in technology where everyone is both right and wrong right now. Right. I mean, whoever thinks that this is going to reinvent the world and solve every problem as we know it is probably wrong. And, uh, and those who feel like it's nothing are certainly wrong as well. Uh, I, I always find it fascinating when a technology forces on us a compromise of something that we typically thought was extremely important. Um, a great example happened in my industry where five to seven years ago, um, when Adobe bought my company, Behance, actually back in 2012, the idea of a creative tool for, for professionals on the web was insane. Like no one would ever trade performance and precision for ease of access and collaboration. You know, when we went to creatives and asked them, like, would you want a web-based application for image editing or screen design or whatever? It was like laughable. It was like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to bring my performance down to like whatever my web connection is. Right. And yet, there were some teams out there, like my friend Dylan and others, who recognized that people are willing to trade performance and precision for ease of collaboration. And it was like this insight into this next you know, generation or psychographic of like, I want everything to be with other people. Like I, I grew up in the age of Google Docs. And even if I have a little more kind of latency issue, I'd rather have that than not be able to work with other people in a truly multiplayer way. And that, to me, has redefined the web as we know it um, for, for my industry. And now we have Photoshop on the web and Illustrator on the web. You know, that's the direction that things are going. So here we are in this whole Web3 debate. One of Aaron, uh, Aaron's biggest points is that um, it's slow. You know, it's like, why would you build a company with slower process? Why would you serve c customers with more onboarding issues and more friction like it defies everything we know about modern software. Everything succeeds based on speed internally and for customers. And now Web3 is like throwing 30 wrenches into the system. 
And so he's right. Like speed is critical and speed will be required for things to succeed. However, what is the compromise that we're all maybe willing to make for speed? I think one of those compromises might be autonomy, you know, might be control, might be privacy, might be, be the sense of ownership, you know, the desire to be incentivized for everything we participate in. Like some of those desires that are very innate consumer desires are legitimate and may in fact, you know, have us trade a little bit for speed. And, um, you know, and then of course, speed will come in later generations of the tech. I think a piece of what you're getting at is something I've mused on in various ways in the past, which is just that like the future of tech allows individuals to make decisions on those trade-offs being mm -hmm. versus being forced into them. Mm -hmm. Like Historically, you were kind of forced into whatever the trade-off was that the biggest company decided for like privacy versus functionality, as an example. Like you just were going to give up your privacy in order to have the high functionality of Facebook or whatever these consolidated platforms are now. Now in the Web3 world, part of what makes me optimistic is that individuals will actually get to choose with their feet around where they want to be on these different spectrums. And so like I think of it even in the most primitive context around like centralization and then like speed and functionality. When you go from like, say, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, there's clearly difference in the like actual decentralized nature of these. And you get a trade-off in terms of the speed, like Solana versus Ethereum and the trade-off there that exists yep. around speed, pricing, et cetera, the ability to batch transactions, et cetera. Um, so part of what I think is interesting in all of this is like that idea of individuals actually being able to go and make those decisions on the trade-offs. I think that's right. And I think that, um, you know, in, in many cases, centralized services will win or hybrid, you know, decentralized by ethos, but centralized to some extent by like certain aspects of the user experience, you know, I, I think are maybe going to ultimately win. But I love your point. I mean, I, the fact that we're no longer forced to do anything, you know, is an incredible feat in and of itself. And, you know, whenever there's competition, it always rises, you know, the customer experience and the options that we all have, which is a good thing ultimately. Yeah. And you figure out what people actually care about, right? Like yeah. everyone says they care about privacy. One of my like general hot takes is that people don't actually care that much about privacy or like the, the average person um, doesn't really care that much about privacy and won't be willing to actually yeah. pay for it with worse functionality. Um, and so I think generation. you finally learn what's yeah. that? Especially in the next generation. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. yeah. You've gotten used to it, right? Like people right. are still posting their entire lives on TikTok, which is like owned by the Chinese government. So <laughs> Um, anyway, why don't we dive into some of these, um, Greg, what do you think? Let's do it. Um, shit, where do we start? It's so, there's so many good ones in here. Well, let's start at the top actually. Um, cause I thought the first one was like really ripe for some interesting things. So recommendations kill favorites. Um, can you talk a little bit about this one to start us off, Scott? Yeah, well, I'll be like provocative just to try to make this interesting for all of us. But what, what if we're all living in our own prisons, so to speak? You know, everything that we happen to be exposed to throughout childhood based on our location, cultural, you know, uh, the, the, the music tastes of our parents, the restaurants we happened to learn about when we were, you know, living in our city and traveling, like all of these things were exposed to by circumstance. We cherry pick the ones that we like, and then those become our favorites and those become our go-tos. And we end up in some ways living a life where we're like more and more constrained to those things because time is limited and you want to make sure you have a good meal at night 
you want to make sure that your hour of listening to music is good music. And so you just go back to music you've always listened to. And so I've always been, you know, worried that I'm being like increasingly confined to some degree. And I used to insanely uh, organize my playlists on, you know, my music playlists and stuff. And my dinner party playlist was my go-to playlist for so many years and so many years. And then over the last year or so, you know, Spotify launched their enhanced function. So any three or four songs you put in a playlist, you can push enhance and have it a refreshed AI driven playlist based on that, you know, short, short set of songs. And my running list became that list. And I was like, oh my gosh, new music every single day when I run. And suddenly I realized that my playlists are like these old, you know, dusty, limiting things that I've been a prisoner to, to some degree. And, um, and maybe recommendations have reached that singularity moment, at least they have for me and my musical taste, where I trust the AI more than my own kind of go-tos, you know, my own like sort of, you know, circumstantial run-ins with random songs from Shazam or whatever. And so, you know, that for music, that for travel, that for restaurants, that for whatever, like maybe we're all going to vastly increase the surface area of our exposure to stuff we like. And in some ways, like abandon the concept of favorites altogether. I've okay. So my reaction to that is, and you know, I worked at stumble upon, which is like, OG Spotify recommendation. So I'm a huge believer in this. Um, finally, this is like hitting mainstream. What scares me about it is, or actually it's a question to you. Like, do you think that we lose like in a world where, you know, AI is giving us all our recommendations. Do we lose, like, let's say I create a playlist for you, for, you know, Scott, like yep. that emotional connection that I, you know, oh, like, yeah, maybe Greg doesn't get me as well as, you know, an algorithm that has been learning, you know, trained to learn about me for 10 years. But um, the fact that he actually created this and thought about it, even the fact that I don't like the Rolling Stones and it's literally my most hated band. Like, do you feel like we'll lose that? That's a good question. You know, I think that, I think that it will, I think these, I think the list that you're describing, you might make for me will never be as good. Um, now I do think we'll still have spontaneity. You know, I think that Spotify probably knows you and I are connected and, you know, might say, Hey, you know, let's algorithmically test Greg's favorite three songs with Scott and see if he, you know, replays them, likes them or ignores them or skips them. And, you know, and, and so I, I feel like, I mean, the answer is, of course, yes and yes, right? Like, I mean, we should still, we will still be exposed to music in totally random ways. I guess this is more about our human tendency to always collect favorites and go back to the stuff we know versus surrendering ourselves to like the AI algorithms that we don't know because they're just so reliable and they push us to actually open our boundaries, you know, more so than our own go-tos. It's also... <clears throat> interestingly self-limiting from a happiness perspective. So I have this like utilitarian view on this, which is somewhat informed by like my childhood radio nostalgia where mm. me playing Spotify in my car, I have my playlist. I have my like 50 songs. I like, they're probably embarrassing to a lot of people. I, you know, I still like the Goo Goo Dolls. I still like semi-charm life. If you don't bop to semi-charm life and you don't like sing that out loud, I don't trust you. Um, but I still have all of those things, but there's something different about when you turn on the radio and the song you love just comes on without you pressing the button. It's like a totally different level of happiness. And 
part of me thinks that there's actually like a increase in overall societal happiness from having things that we love Mm -hmm. surface to us without us actually doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is like an unlock for that. If you actually have AI that suddenly is able to, maybe not suddenly, slowly then all at once, um, able to surface things that you're like, holy shit, I loved that. And it was totally new to me. And it brought up this nostalgia, this different feeling versus me going and picking the song. That's actually like a net happiness driver societally. So I like where you're going. I mean, you just made me realize that the only company that would probably let put a patch on my arm to like determine and detect my pheromones and my like moods and my temperature and body and everything else would probably be Spotify. Because, you know, I'm, I am totally fine with music being like, as you said, like perfectly teed up for me based on like all of these signals about me that I don't even realize. And if I'm suddenly sad, and then boom, that like perfect song from like, you know, the 80s that always got me pumped up when I didn't want to go to school. <laughs> if that came on, like that would be pretty amazing. So uh... that's epic. That's actually like a totally epic idea um, that I've never really th- everyone always talked about, like, um, you know, when, I, when we were kids, actually, those mood rings, you have those oh. rings that would like claim they change colors for your different moods. You guys just but like having... gave me this crazy idea. Whoop. We should get the yeah. Whoop band yeah, yeah. and Spotify into a partnership. What do you guys think? No, no, I like that. All right, writing that down. Yeah. Well, I wonder, yeah, I mean, it's, (laughs) it it seems like a no-brainer to do something like that, right? Because music is like, I mean, historically, even if you just look at human society, music has always been a common thread of things that brought people together, things that drove different, you know, relationships, religious, spiritual, whatever it was, unlocks. I mean, even if you think about people with spiritual wellness, meditation, like all of the like calm and, you know, headspace and all the apps around that. Like, how do you integrate all of this into this like holistic human experience that's driven through sound? Um, Kind of brilliant, actually. I'm a little bit thrown off by this. I didn't think we were going to come up with shit. (laughs) Well, this kind of goes into one of the, uh, one of the other predictions. I don't know if you want to jump around or not. Yeah, please. You know, this whole, this whole question about us opting into ads And, you know, I wanted to like kind of strike out the word ads and just call it personalized experiences. But I think that, you know, we, we grew up in the age of banner ads and like tooth teeth whitening ads and weight loss ads. And like, we see ads as dirty and interruptive and takeovers of web pages and shit like that. We just hate ads. Right. And yet we love it when we walk into a restaurant and they know our name. We love it when like, uh, you know, a, a restaurant ordering off like sweet cream knows that we're a vegetarian and all, just like, hides all the menu items with meat. Like, you know, we like we like to get personalized experiences in every part of our life. People love, uh, you know, the not all people, but I know a lot of people who like the Instagram ads, you know, that they get because they're like, I actually click on them. It's like cool stuff, you know, that is seems geared towards me. And so, you know, I know we're in this era right now of like the great opt out. And um, as iOS, you know, surfaces ad tracking and kind of makes it harder for brands to give us personalized experiences. But I think as we're about to enter a world where we want our music to be served up to us based on our body temperature, you know, we want our, uh, we want our, uh, it's just me, maybe I'm, I'm not suggesting that's all of us. Um, we want, you know, we want, we want to have um, experiences with brands where they know who we are. I think we're going to start opting back in. And I think, especially in the world of AR, you know, where we have immersive experiences around us, we're going to want to be known everywhere we are. 
Yeah, I also yeah, think... Also, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, I also think, like... First of all, when I think of my own life, like, probably, like, 5% of my wardrobe is from Instagram, if I actually think about it. Pretty high like, number. Is that high yeah. or low? I, I on it like... It's high. It's high. It's like when I'm, I'm when I think of my, my flip flops, I have some hats. Like I don't when I'm scrolling through Instagram, I don't feel like I'm getting targeted. You know, I feel like that's like the old guard that target like that targeted feel it just feels like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I talked about Stumble Upon earlier. For those of you who don't know Stumble Upon, it was this uh, this website or toolbar, actually, that you'd press a button based on your interest. It would serve you up websites that were interesting to you. And we invented this, we didn't want to call them ads, um, we called it paid discovery, um, which, you know, one in every 10 stumbles would be this, you know, relevant for you webpage. And I think that that's the direction, I mean, it's it's happened with Instagram, but I think like you're totally right on this prediction. I think it's 100% going to happen. And I think that people like me are just going to want to opt into content from brands basically or con- or or influencers or whatever that's the way i see it at least so i get a little scared here um and it ties the first prediction set together to the second one for me and i want i want you guys to tell me if you if you disagree um what scares me here is like so music tied to your mood and your daily habits and yeah like whether you're tired awake whatever I love that. Like, I think it's human, you know, happiness, utilitarian view is, is net positive. When you start like now venturing into the world of like consumer brands, being able to know how you're feeling and target you at times when like your emotional state is most, you know, attuned to spending Mm -hmm. money because you're depressed or whatever it is. I start to feel this like little dystopian tickle on the back of my neck Mm -hmm. that, um, I don't love like it starts to get black mirrory for me. And so what I worry about with this like opt-in ads, like super personalized, everything is perfect right when you need it um, is like, okay, where does the data sharing, um, where does all that just like cross that very thin line to yeah. being overly intrusive in your life? I mean, listen, I, I'm scared about the same thing. And as I'm sharing ideas and, and brainstorming with you guys, I'm also cognizant of the fact that we're going to have to have incredible amounts of transparency with the user so they understand, you know, what they're doing, you know, what they're sharing and why, um, you you know, know, maybe it's like a, um, maybe it's like a way where you kind of get paid for your willingness to contribute that additional information into these algorithms. Like, um, you know, conceivably in a, in an economic sense, um, more highly efficient ads allow consumer companies to lower prices uh, because they're able to actually drive better margin efficiency or, or better kind of return on that spend. Um, so I wonder whether they can kind of pass through some of that. Like, you know, you actually kind of get paid in a certain sense more directly for your mm-hmm. willingness to contribute additional data or opt into these things. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, there's a lot of innovation to be had here. Like, can people be informed why they're seeing or why an experience is a certain way? You know, when you're looking at an experience, you already kind of know what's an ad. I mean, they have to show that. But if you can further understand, like, what's being personalized for you and where it's coming from, you know, imagine if it doesn't, you know, if it's a normal thing for us as consumers to kind of go in and just look at our profile from the standpoint of the of the brand. Like, what are you know, are, do they see me as an athletic person? Do they see me as a, uh, a this person or a that person and why? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds kind of scary and controversial, but shouldn't we as consumers 
kind of know how we're being profiled to some extent and maybe even be able to, you know, to impact that to some degree. That's interesting. I wonder whether there's a way to do that in a third party context. So hmm. if you could like create a tool that basically takes as inputs, everything you're being served up yeah. and then creates an output of like, here's the archetype that you are being um, targeted based off of in your, in your online persona. You know, it's, um, it's somewhat related, which is, you know, another idea that I've been um, brewing and hopefully I'll find some founder that's tackling this and um, wants help, but is the idea of us, you know, as consumers filling out a profile for ourselves of all of our likes and dislikes and everything and proactively opting to share that with every brand and restaurant and hotel and airline that we ever come in contact with. Because everyone in the hospitality sector wants to know more about us. And there's a lot of information that we want everyone to know about us, or at least like the subset of brands and experiences that we patronize as consumers. And so why isn't there like a, a brand for that, you know, um, where you fill out your preferences? You know, I don't like shampoo bottles in my hotel rooms because I don't want to waste plastic every time I stay in a hotel. Put that in there and then boom, every time I'm at any participating hotel, they have my profile. They don't waste the money on the shampoo. I'm not pissed about it, and everyone wins. This is you have to say, Sahil. So, <laughs> so okay. So, well, for I, like, I might want to go do this. <laughs> this is brilliant. So, basically, like, you have a central hub, whatever, call it uh, Belsky. Yeah. And um, you log in, and it collects upfront a bunch of information about you on all of your different preferences, food, hospitality, all of these different things. And then hospitality industry, whatever it is, travel industry, hotels, restaurants, everything start in a given city. They yep. all pay to then access this hub. It's all, it's an um, API thing, you know, yeah. like we, would, we would make an API that interacts with all their databases for all their yeah. customers. Right. And they just do and then it's hugely and valuable for them. Cause then yeah. the first time I go to Joe's bar and grill on the corner, they create the best experience for me. They already know exactly the five things that I'm going to want. They know the exact drink. I always have a Woodford on the rocks when I come yeah. in. They already have it ready yeah. for me. It's like that amazing restaurant experience you get when you've been somewhere a hundred times and they know right. you're the usual and they give you the thing and they know exactly what you like and they know it's your birthday and they know, you know, give you a rose because it's your wife's, you know, anniversary that right. week. Like they do all that. And isn't it funny that like huh. every brand Shit. out there is trying to suck data out of us that we don't necessarily want to have shared. And I'm suggesting like, let's make a company that gets all the data we do want shared, you know, let's structure it in such a way, you know, gets it from us for free because we want people to know it. And then every brand that we patronize, you know, that's, that, that pings this API, like, you know, gives us a better experience. And it's sort of in our control, right? Because we furnish the data ourselves. Would you would you make this product Web three or do you think it's more of a Web two product? I mean, you know what? I, that's a great question. Like, I don't know. Like, I am, I've only built products in the Web two world, so I think about it that way. You know, my view on my view on the decentralized concept, and it goes back to like the early conversation, is the trade offs, right? And you know, if, if there's an, an instance where the customer needs or wants, you know, something like the benefits of the decentralization of the of the product experience or the underlying, like, you know, the data structure or whatever, the service itself, if they're willing to trade, you know, a lot of the benefits of centralization for that. Sounds great. Yeah, I think I think some of the benefits just like jamming on it a little bit. Um, some of the benefits of making a Web3 is, well, firstly, it's just 
you know, if you want to, you know, the, let's say you earn tokens, you'd be able to swap it into Ethereum or other, you know, USDC. Earn tokens for what? So let's say every time you like checked in a like, so to speak, or you, you posted a like, you got one token of some sort. So the more that you contributed to the network and the deeper the, the network you gave, so you're incentivized to, to publish because you're getting, um, you're getting tokens. And maybe those tokens, so that's, oh, sorry, you have something you want to say there? No. Cool. So, so like, number one is like the financialization of it and swapping. Number two is um, the social aspect of it. So let's just say, um, you know, a friend of mine actually bought me an Xbox for, uh, for Christmas and I started downloading some games and I started like, understand you know kind of getting into it i go onto eisenberg you know you, my like published page and i say like i like halo infinite i like to play with danny trin um etc cetera, etc cetera. i earn these tokens and if i have enough xbox tokens or i have enough overwatch the game tokens or enough you know ha you know halo infinite tokens then i get access to maybe a private community of people with certain exclusive benefits mm. I guess I think about this and just like, and maybe I'm just being like naive on it, but I think there's like a pretty simple MVP that you can build something around in one city. Like say, say we were doing it in New York, I would just go, you go get 10,000, 20,000 users to fill out the info. And then you go on the back of that and go to a thousand, you know, kind of single, like single, um, location restaurants hotels whatever that are in the city and you tell them to pay you a hundred dollars a month to have access to this pool of information from these people and then you use it to serve up hey here are these places to the twenty thousand people you just signed up and say here are these places that are going to know exactly what you want deliver you a great experience and the places are willing to do it because the retention on these users that are going to love their first experience is going to be amazing and they're going to have customers for life or at least yeah. longer than they otherwise would because they're going to serve up a great experience but you like what is that i mean a th a, at, at a thousand stores at a hundred dollars a month that's a million dollar arr business um right out of the gate um i just like i think you could spin some and you would get smarter over time because you'd be able to as you got more data make the algorithms better and um, provide a better service and you know, and, and eventually you could have some of these restaurants or hotels or others, you know, they could start building the profiles for you because you know you book at a local hotel or you book at a, a you know wherever you go or an Airbnb, and they say, hey, you know, before you come, like fill out this survey so we know your preferences, and so we, it's a white labeled version of the of the questionnaire that you mentioned at the beginning, and then at the end it says, do you want to only share this with Airbnb or do you want to share this with every brand and restaurant and whatever you go to so you can have a personalized experience everywhere like what percentage of people are going to be like yeah you know everywhere and then yeah boom, like you have it for the for the entire you know, yeah globe of consumers and yeah know, that becomes consumers. your you know you 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 leave stk steakhouse in new york and they tell you hey you can get 50 dollars off your next meal if you fill this thing out right and now right. you have you know as a company you have another you know thousand people a week or something that are filling this thing mm -hmm. out for so, free and the company pays for it. Exactly. Like, I think it's, you know, it, it could be, it could be like the one massive con consumer data company where everyone's information is in there because they wanted it to be in there. It's stuff you want the world to know about you, you know, and that's what I find so compelling about it. 
I, I actually agree in the sense, you know, in terms of an MVP, like it doesn't need to be Web3. And in fact, like 90% of Web3 ideas, MVP it in Web2 and just learn. Yeah. And then if you can add a Web3 component, once you've understand the problem set a lot better, I think that makes a lot more yeah. sense just because it's harder to build on Web3. I'll, I'll tell you like a somewhat of a tangent because I know we, we get to jam on this call, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, please. Is is also around, I mean, listen, you know, I've, had, I've had a lot of these Web3 debates with people as well as, as you have and have seen a lot of them transpire. And there's a cynical side of me that wonders also if the reason why a lot of things will have to become Web3 is because of the financialization of all of us and in some ways, it's a sad statement on humanity. But, you know, do we, are we going to no longer participate in things unless we're compensated? You know, there was an interesting debate I was having with a few folks over on, on Twitter this weekend about, about Wikipedia. You know, um, Bill Gurley mentioned, you know, to me, well, you know, Wikipedia seems to be going pretty well and no one's paid. It's not a DAO, you know, and it's probably one of the most, you know, incredible gems of the world in the internet, at least, right? Uh now, a couple questions that I pose in response. Number one, is Wikipedia all it could be? You know, is it some ways being held back by the fact that it's like 0.02% of participants are actually contributing content? Everyone else is just using it. Like, could it be something that's 10x better if people were incentivized, if maybe the best talent in the world were incentivized to engage, number one? But then number two, I was like, what if less people actually contribute to it in the future because of the desire to be compensated for everything, you know, like what if yeah. that's like this new trend? I okay. So first of all, have you guys been to Wikipedia recently? Like the homepage? Oh my god! It, like how much how earlier much today? To pay money? You mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a yeah, third yeah. of the website is like give us money, and it's it's a nonprofit. You know, it's an, I, I and I totally get it, and but it just feels potentially unsustainable, and for for one of the greatest. Uh, contribute like Wikipedia could be one of the most important products of humanity. If if you think about it, the fact that yep. that could potentially break is really scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it like brought the entirety of like human knowledge base, uh, the base of human knowledge online. It, did. it was like it, what it, the it, research papers did, except they did it for the mainstream, right? Like it, it wasn't. Yeah, it's like a nonprofit. You know, it's it's the closest thing to a DAO that we basically have today, um, in the sense that it's communally governed, and and it's owned by no one essentially. Uh, but it's, did you guys you ever know, do, as a side note, did you guys ever do wiki quests when you were like younger as kids? No. This no. was the most fun thing we used to do during like uh, during like free periods in middle school or whatever. You would start at some page, like say you started at Space Jam. And then there would be an endpoint. Like you had to get to, you know, from Space Jam to Pope Leo X. And you had to just, only using link clicking, oh, wow. you had to find your way from one to the other. And it was such like a, it was actually a very cool thing because it forced you to like create these mental connections and map out in your mind, like, okay, oh. what's my general path to get from one to the other? And it was all like, it was speed. And then sometimes you do one with number of clicks. And so you'd say you have to do it at under 10 clicks. Um, and get from one to the other, but it's actually like pretty fun. I now I'm, I'm on Wikipedia right now as we speak, and it's making me like the nostalgia is kicking in of wanting to go back and do one. So funny! <laughs> it is an incredible resource, and yeah, you know, it would be a shame yeah. if it 
was less maintained in the future because of the, you know, this strange change in, that we, we feel like everything we want to contribute to, we want to be an owner of and otherwise not contribute. So, so, yeah. so with Wikipedia, with that example, if you were trying to create a Web3 version of that, you, do you think that's a worthwhile endeavor or, or, you know, what would it look like that's different than the current version? Yeah, well, I guess the grand experiment would be that instead of having you know this loyal uh, army of volunteers, very very small minority of users give up their time to kind of sustain it, you know, if you had a group of people that were otherwise incentivized to not only sustain but innovate it, right, to like bring it to new levels or whatever, you know, there's I guess the negative argument would be, hey, first of all, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But I don't like that argument generally because it doesn't bring us to extraordinary ends of anything. Um, and so like, what else would you do? You know, how what, will Wikipedia ever become an immersive experience? Um, you know, why aren't, why isn't, why doesn't Wikipedia have a meme layer associated with it? You know, we know that memes are a compression vehicle for knowledge, like, but no one has an incentive, right, to, to build on top of Wikipedia. If you, you know, if it's still, if it's just going to be part of the nonprofit, unfortunately, like it doesn't seem like it's attracting that level of like innovator necessarily. Um, so I, 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 that's an open question, right? If it were, if it were sort of, if it were an, an organization in which every participant gained tokens based on their contributions, would there be 10x more contributors? Would there be 10x more developers? Would there be 10x more designers, you know, uh, making mock-ups of concepts that are voted on and then executed and whatever, or not? Would it just be like a, you know, a crazy crap storm of stuff without any, you know, centralized leader and decision maker. Like, I don't know, but it's definitely <laughs> worth the experiment. <laughs> what if you made Wikipedia into like a play to earn game, Greg? Mm. Um, and you had to kind of like buy some number of wiki tokens in order to be a kind of builder and contributor on the platform. And then you can earn them for contributing well and innovating around it. Um, and then you kind of cap, you know, the ability for new people to buy into it so that it never becomes like centralized in the hands of one given party or body that would then control the internet. I think, uh, so I love that. I think gaming is a really great way to to get people to do things. Um, and it's just a really great, you know, I'm curious Scott's opinion, but like great product design uh or experience to bring people together, together, immerse them and get them to click buttons. So yeah, I think if we were doing Wikipedia 3.0, uh, you know, in web three, it makes sense to, to think about it in a gaming perspective. Yeah. I'm inclined to agree in the sense that, you know, I've always felt like, um, you know, leaderboards, you know, would incentivize, you know, further people to be kind of greatest contributors in certain verticals, right? And you know, you're you you are always wanting to defend your position in that leaderboard. And that means you have to do a great job in terms of community guidelines and you have to make sure that everything's factual and backed up and whatever. I mean, I think game mechanics ultimately, you know, drive those like ego analytics that make us feel like we're successful, you know, contributing in the right way to a product. So it'll be super interesting to see that layer, you know, in a product media. Yeah, Alexis Ohanian has at 776, they have this internal proprietary software they built out called Cerebro, I think it's called, like Star Trek reference, um, that manages like all of their internal stuff. And one of the portals is this like value add, like how can I help portal within it um, that actually gamifies their 
you know, ability to execute against asks from portfolio companies mm-hmm. and how much value they're adding. And so like every single investment professional or team member at 776 has like a scorecard that shows up publicly every day and they all try to compete to see who can add more value to the portfolio. And it's, it's sort of brilliant, right? Like they invested in Axie. So I know they understand gaming and, and, you know, play to earn in general, but it's kind of a brilliant way of just incentivizing people to actually execute against the whole, how can I help thing that VC, you know, it's become a VC meme. Um, totally. you know, make it less, make it less meme-like and more reality. You know, in some ways, like any mechanic that brings us back to the way things once were, you know, I, I also shared in this article, like that my, that's always my governing kind of compass for predictions is, you know, what sorts of technologies are enabling us to go back to the world we long for. And so in some ways, what did we do in the early days to amuse ourselves? We just played games, right? I mean, we, competed in the gladiator arena. We watched other people compete. We, you know, we always were like having that sort of um, very visceral, physical, like gaining mentality as, as, uh, as early humans. And so to, to bring in some of those mechanics to the types of, you know, work and kind of things we do together these days, you know, seems like a no brainer. Yeah. It's like, um, I think of it as like nostalgia as a service. Yeah. Like it bring, brings you back. Um, it actually ties into one of my favorite ones on your list too really well, which is this whole idea of polygamous work. Um, and the reason I think it ties in is because to, to your point on like arrows of progress being really around back to the way things once were, I think of like the cl- when you read the classics and you read the classic works of all of these like stoic philosophers or ancient Greek philosophers, so much of them was like, they were grounded in being polymaths. Hmm. Um, they weren't just one thing. They were a philosopher. They were a writer. They were an athlete. They, you know, they were like 10 things and they did all of them. They were socialites. Um, and then somewhere along the way, like the industrial age brought us this whole idea of you graduate college, which you had to go and spend way too much money for. You get done, you take a job, you work in that job for 40 years, and then they give you a gold watch and you retire. And that's your life. That's what it looks like. You, yeah. you know, you hope you save mo- enough money to be okay, but that's your life. Um, and I thought your way of phrasing the polygamous careers um, was brilliant. So I, I'd, I'd love to dive in on this one because I think there's also, you know, hundreds of businesses that are going to be built around this exact trend and this exact kind of flow of progress. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. I, I think that, uh, I mean, I've always found personally, like, you know, that I'm most happy when I feel fully utilized and I feel fully utilized both in personal ways with my family and friends. And then professionally, I feel fully utilized, both building products with teams, helping founders go through problems of their own, partnering with designers to solve gnarly problems. And, you know, to have to pick one of those tracks as my full-time forever role would leave me depressed. And I actually made that mistake once in my career um, where I said, okay, I'm only going to be, you know, uh, an investor. And it just was like, I felt like I'd hung up my sort of, uh, spurs, you know, in every other aspect of what I was proud of about myself. And it just did not, you know, wasn't, it didn't, it didn't work well for me. So, you know, I think that the, uh, and to your point that the entire system, right, from college recruiting to healthcare, LinkedIn profiles, tax forms, they're all geared towards monogamous careers. Um, and it's not really about people splitting themselves. Uh, now, why is, but why is this suddenly a turning point? Like what's really systematically changing right now and why? I mean, first of all, we've like grown up in the generation that's now in there, you know, entering the workforce, 
they grew up with like constant bells and buzzes, right? They were in a hyper networked world where they would be, you know, on Facebook and then on a math tutor and then in Roblox and chatting live with someone and live broadcasting something to their friends and whatever, all in the same hour. And so the idea of like building that skill set until you're 18 or whatever, and then suddenly being told, okay, now your job is to just crank out Excel spreadsheets at a bank, you know, that's going to be like such a drop in dopamine for lack of a better term. I don't know, like it's just going to be driving us nuts. And so um, why, you know, what, what does this new world look like right now? A lot of people that are kind of anti this thesis would say one of two things. Oh, that's just the millennials. They're all selfish. You know, they don't want to like work hard, you know, and then others have told me, Hey, um, Scott, you're missing the fact that like specialization wins. Like I would only want to bet on people who truly specialize. Well, to those people, you know, my one retort is that creativity is the new productivity. You know, we're going to stand out increasingly in our work and on social media and on any other thing that's, you know, amplifying our opportunity stream through our creativity. You know, it's not about doing things faster. It's about standing out and doing things more beautifully and elegantly and whatever else. And so if we're, if we're all becoming artists of AI and robots, you know, is automating all of the productivity side of our equation and it's all about creativity, well, then we, you know, we, we better be acting like artists and artists die when they become too specialized. Like the whole point of being an artist is to be like exposed to many mediums and constantly be changing your own craft. Yeah, there's so much there to dig into. So creativity is the new productivity. I've never heard it phrased that way. And that's brilliant. Um, I think like I always go back to this whole concept of working like a lion, not like a cow. Like yeah. if you're if you're a creative worker, you have to work like a lion. It has to be bursts and sprints of creative energy followed by legitimate periods of rest. And the industrial age work culture, which we've, that's persisted over the last several hundred years is not suited to that, right? You're supposed to go to the nine to five job. That's like what 90% of people still do. And it's what you're supposed to do. Um, and all of society and all of our infrastructure has been built on top of that. To your point, you know, financial services is one of the hugest areas of disruption for this, in my opinion, because the way I put it is like 1099 income is effectively taxed at a much higher rate than W-2. Not in the sense of like an actual tax rate, but in the sense that you can't go get leverage on it. You, good luck getting a mortgage with a bunch of 1099 income. If you have a million dollars of 1099 income here and a million dollars of W-2 income here, what is that worth to you in society? A whole hell of a lot more on the W-2 side, right. for better or for worse. Um, because all of the systems, all of the underwriting, everything has been built around it. I mean, we, Greg and I both have a friend who has like, you know, eight plus figures net worth and is not able to get like a really low rate loan um, on a house. And he could buy the house outright, but he cannot do it because he doesn't really have W-2 income. Um, that's crazy like that we live in a culture where that's the case. And so I think there's all of these cool business opportunities that are going to be built around, assuming this trend is real, which I do personally believe it is, um, building the infrastructure layer that allows polygamous workers to thrive in society in the same way that W-2 workers have been able to. Like, I think um, there's this business collective, a friend, Human Radfar, um, was the founder of that is like enabling 1099 workers from a kind of tax and backend yeah. um, efficiency standpoint. Brilliant. Um, 
things like you know new banking um, for for businesses, for startups, for small businesses that enable you to do things more efficiently, that are going to start being you know able to underwrite more effectively. There's all sorts of businesses that I think are going to be built around this trend. Um, but fixing the infrastructure is like it's the only thing that's going to allow it to really thrive. And you know, Greg, I feel like this is I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but I feel like this is an actual area where the notion of DAOs for future businesses might have a talent advantage. Because if you are just a rock star engineer or designer or whoever else who has this desire to have two or three irons in the fire that really fully utilize their skill sets and interests, you know, and subscribe to this new kind of polygamous career, you know, manifestation of, you know, or, just, or approach to life, I guess, you know, they're, they're, they're not, it's not like freelancers. They're actually going to want to own, right? Some of their outcome. They're going to be, they're going to want to be compensated based on their contributions, not some like predetermined contract that's super ambiguous. It's like I want to be compensated for the code that I commit, for the design that gets in produ into production, and you know, are there models that could allow people to kind of, you know, have some percentage of various different projects? you know, act as an owner of those things, you know, be rewarded for their efforts to market it and almost almost behave like a founder. I don't know if Google still has it, but they used to have this, um, I think they called it a spot on bonus where you basically can give a coworker $500, like almost at any time if they do something really great. Um, and I thought that was really cool because it, you know, it's not about the money, but just the fact that, you know, if you do good things, here's a bonus. And mm -hmm. to, your, to your point, Scott, around like Gen Z, especially, like they need to be in an environment that feels more like, you know, Roblox than, um, you know, doing data entry, right? Or it's just not going to work. And what I love about uh, DAOs is you, you're, you're getting dopamine. You're getting dopamine by virtue of like, the Discord is buzzing. There's community calls, and most importantly, um, you're getting you know every day or every time you contribute, um, every time you commit code, every time you design, every time you do something, you get that hit of like, I just earned tokens. Hmm. Yeah, and it's you know it's funny like again back to that financialization of everything thing. You know, I don't want us to, I don't want to turn us to all turn ourselves into hamsters. You know, right. where it's like. Do this, get this, do this, get this. And then it just keeps like doing that over and over. But I also wonder if, you know, there is some gain in empowerment, right? When you know that like every contribution you're making is being valued as opposed to like wondering, you know, whether you're just a cog in the system and not moving any needle forward. So I think there's something to be explored here. I do think that the, the companies that embrace this, this, you know, new modern form of worker are going to have a talent advantage. There's and, someone. You know, yeah. There's someone I know who. Um, well, actually, Sahil and I talk a lot about balance and rest and 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 that all the time. And there's someone I know who who's a part of a DAO, and and this particular DAO has this token that has just gone through the roof. So, you know, he was getting, you know, a couple hundred dollars a week or or a few thousand dollars a week, um, and it's now you know, to do a couple tasks. And all of a sudden now, I don't know what the number is, but it's something crazy like 50 or $100,000 a week. Um, and he's working 20 hours a day contributing to this DAO. He quit his job and stuff like that. 
and I FaceTimed with him and I like saw his eyes. There's like, they're drooping. He looked terrible. He didn't shower. It was like brutal. And I was like, dude, you need to stop. And he couldn't get him. And he basically told me, he's like, I can't, I can't stop. So I think what we're going to see is you're right. Like, I think that like, I think there's going to be a subset of people who are going to be contributing to DAOs who are, are going to be unable to basically take a step back and be like, okay, I need to go eat with my family. I need to take a shower, et cetera. And that's scary. There's, a, there's also just going to be opportunities <clears throat> around like the polygamous worker operating system, um, mm-hmm. both from a company standpoint and from an actual individual standpoint where like right now, all of these companies have built um, uh, the kind of operating system for like managing hybrid workforces or managing remote workforces, right? There's all these great businesses out there that are doing that, that enable like talent, HR teams, whatever to manage, where are people working? When are they working, et cetera. But like extending that to now I have workers who are working maybe 20% of their time. I have like a two day, you know, worker and I need to make sure that, um, you know, we're optimizing what they're working on, when they're working on. Maybe I want to make them 40% rather than 20% and kind of manage that and negotiate it. Like the operating system to do all of that, I think has yet to be built um, around this, you know, kind of polygamous work future. Um, and it's pretty interesting because right now it's like really fly by night shit. If you're a 1099 worker and you're trying to do a bunch of different projects, where do you go? Like maybe you have an Upwork profile, maybe you're on mm-hmm. Fiverr, um, you know, maybe you're kind of tweet, you know, Twitter DMing with people to do some work. There's no like central portal that actually allows you yeah. to kind of, you know, m- manage all of this in one place and have the companies be able to like manage trade, etc. I think it's a great it's a great opportunity because being in a big company, I know how hard it is to bring on a freelancer to do a specific project for us. And you kind of have to go through someone else. And yeah. And if you're in New York or California, good luck. It's crazy. And, and yet I've also seen the other side of this, you know, having built Behance and seen the creative careers of the most talented people I, you know, on the network that I always followed those folks, they don't work for anyone. Like they work for lots of different people, right? They don't work for any one particular company only is what I mean to say. If you're like an incredible illustrator, typographer, a person like Jessica Hish, or if you're a, you know, just an amazing, you know, motion graphics designer or data, data uh, infographic kind of person or whatever, like you are, you are working for the best agencies and brands in the world. And whether it's Nike or whoever else, like, you know, they're kind of working with you at your terms because they want your skill set. Um, but those people are so famous that, you know, they can get companies to bend over backwards to have to work with them. But if that's any lead indicator of what the best talent in the world will be doing in the future, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a decent one. And I think that to your point, the system that allows folks to be engaged by many different brands and projects, um, without friction, you know, that, that just unlocks a massive talent advantage for the, um, you know, for the companies ultimately. So yeah, and for the people, it's more efficient pricing of their services, right? If it's all in one place, you don't get these like massive gaps. Um, you know, it's like a much more efficient market for them, which is good right. for the individual. So you can kind of like, um, you know, you can onboard people that way because you're actually, yep. they're not going to have the friction costs. It'll just be like pretty transparent. That's right. Yeah. And Scott used this word, you used this word, Scott, um, or two words just to say um, standing out. It's really about standing out. And I think that's so true that um, I'm happy that we're, you know, going into 2022 where it's, you know, it's not about, you know, if you graduate a certain school or, or so to speak, it's about just 
um, can you be creative and can you stand out amongst the sea? I mean, it's, that's very difficult, but I think that if you, you know, for everyone who's listening, um, if you can, you know, orient yourself around standing out, I think that's going to go a long way. I think that's right. And, and that's also why I feel like the democratization of these creative tools that let you stand out is also so critical. Um, you know, another one of my sort of thoughts in this piece was around the, the mainstream of 3D creation, because I just feel like right now it's still something that's pretty hard to do. And most of us, you know, can't just create in 3D. But, uh, you know, if we're, if we're starting to have experiences with each other in VR and soon AR, I feel like just like, you know, Facebook started to introduce photos into the activity feed, actually, like after their launch, like it was just the profile photo, as we might remember. And then photo, and everyone sort of became a photographer once social media welcomed photography as a mainstream, you know, part of the product and cameras on our phones allowed us all to be photographers and edit our photos. Same exact thing's going to happen for 3D. I'm like wholly convinced that that's the case. And, uh, and, you know, but the tools don't exist for that yet, which is pretty exciting. But yes, standing out. I mean, we're at the end of the day, we're all brands to some extent, and we're all only as late as good and fresh as our latest content right yeah and i think it's like what does that really mean concretely like standing out it's like understanding like cultural zeitgeist and you know if people are going this you know zigging this way like zagging and using design and creativity to 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 be different and so you stand out on a timeline you stand out on a feed exactly yeah and it's just it's just like we we fundamentally now live in a very very cool era for entrepreneurs um i'm not old enough to say that it's like you know the first time in history but the barriers to starting something are so damn low i mean with no code low code um you know with communities being able to actually surface and find niche communities as quickly as possible i mean if you were to just like very quickly want to come up with a business idea you go out and find a large market, say financial services. You go find a niche community that is underserved by incumbents within that. You go ask a hundred of them, have a hundred conversations and ask them what their pain points are. And then you go use no code, low code to build something that is like very well suited to that niche, tiny community. You can spin up a business in an, I don't know, a week if you wanted to and like get something off the ground and started. Um, And for very, I mean, you can go use like, uh, one of these um, services to hire developer talent to build something out very cost effectively. Like it, it is amazing the era we live in. If you're entrepreneurial and you have a builder mindset, I, I love that. I, I, I totally agree with you. And you know, I think obviously Spotify and sorry, Shopify and some of the other companies that are long tail e-commerce. You know, these are the companies that are enabling right exactly what you're saying. Arming I, the I rebels. And, and in ten years from now, I think we're going to see probably 10x the number of small businesses as there are today. And, uh, and we'll probably, we'll probably have more long tail purchases, you know, in our lives than we do today as well. I think it's partly because of the hyper personalization targeted ad stuff we were talking about earlier, you know, Greg can, instead of 5% of his wardrobe, it can be 15% of his wardrobe. That's from like super niche, you know, uh, makers of stuff that, you know, are uniquely tuned to him. But I also think that we're going to want more of this back to the whole, like we go back to the way things once were, we're going to want to patronize local artisans and small shops or the, the future equivalent of local artisans maybe is the person who like stitches t-shirts on eBay 
you know, with like opposite color stitching, e e sorry, uh, Etsy, maybe not eBay, um, you know, uh, and, and makes like custom things on Etsy. And that's like our t-shirt person and whatever else. And so that, that long tail of small businesses that, you know, that make our lives rich and interesting. I think that's a great positive trend for society and yeah. for culture. There's like an inherent tension here though, right? Where, um, Yes, technology is enabling this long tail to exist. You're able to like rent capacity, um, you know, at contract manufacturers if you're building products or at AWS if you're building, um, you know, services or tech. And, um, and that enables a lot. At the same time, power laws suggest that all of the winnings are going to a fewer number of people. And I, like I've thought about this tension recently in a very weird context with music where I was listening to like throwback 90s singing the card jams or something on Spotify. And there are an unbelievable number of songs by artists that I don't know that they produced any other song. Like it was, you know, uh, uh, steal my sunshine by like LEN, amazing song, like generationally good song. Um, don't know if they produced anything else. Like I, I do feel as though as technology has progressed, there may be fewer of those like random one hit wonder types because all the algorithm just keeps pushing you to the exact same like small set of songs mm -hmm. where in the past radio basically said, if you can get your single on the radio, uh, you know, you could have like just one song that just happened to be a massive hit and, and took off. And so like, I'm wrestling with this inherent tension and maybe I'm, maybe I'm just misunderstanding it, but I am feeling this tension that exists between like the idea of power laws and technology and what it does. Um, and this whole idea of enabling the long tail to exist and thrive. Yeah, it's a really, because there's, you know, there's some behaviors we have in culture where we don't ever want to be like wearing the same thing as everyone else. We don't want to eat the same thing as everyone else. There's this desire, it seems, to, you know, to seek originality, right? And to express yourself creatively through your originality, which, I mean, I guess to your point, we could all be buying it off of Amazon. So there's the power law at work for you. Um, but I, I just, I just can't help but wonder like, for example, I've been watching this company called The Custom Movement, where they um, have artists personalize or customize shoes. And it's this, like, huge marketplace now of people who essentially are whiting, buying, like, the white classic Nikes. And then they're just, like, doing amazing. It was a YC company back, you know, many years ago. Not many, but, like, five years ago, maybe. And, you know, it's, and it's artists, like, personalizing everything for everyone. And the idea of, like, why wouldn't you want personal apparel and shoes that are one of a kind and uniquely catered to you. And that's great for an artist out there. That's great for a small business. It also might be good for Nike if they're making the underlying shoes, but it's, uh, I can see the, the two fighting. I mean, there'll be like the cost curves, you know, fighting yeah. on, in, in favor of power laws. And then there'll be originality maybe on the other side. Yeah. I mean, well, it'll be interesting to see it play out over the next five, 10 years. Um, this was, this was absolutely awesome, man. I feel like we, we've taken up a bunch of your time more than I expected we would just because oh, we good. got so deep down these rabbit holes. But um, this was incredible um, and some just amazing, interesting ideas and insights. And and um, there are a few business ideas in here that if there are entrepreneurs out there who are listening to this that want to go build this, they'll like uh, local, um, customization, optimization for hospitality, SaaS play. If there's someone out there, Scott, me, Greg, <laughs> hit us up because up. I'm ready. super, super interested <laughs> in that. Um, but, uh, no, thank you so much, Scott. This was 
freaking awesome. I'm glad we uh, glad we got to do it. I can't believe this is the first time we've actually interacted somewhat face to face in 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 person here. But uh, no, guys, great. Thanks for thanks first of all for doing these conversations in the first place, and uh, and for having me. I'm excited. Should be a fascinating year ahead. That's for sure. Yeah. No. And thank you for for publishing your notes, your notion, basically, uh, with the world, because <laughs> I think uh, it's a it's a domino effect. That's the best way to describe it. I think a lot of people read that and we had a lot of chatter about it in our discord. Um, and so, uh, you know, thank you for that inspiration and it's going to be a hell of a year. So uh, a lot of trends, a lot of stuff happening. And um, thank you so much, Scott. Absolutely. Thank Speaking you man. guys. Talk Bye. soon. All right. Cool. Wow. That was fucking crazy. Are we, we recording? recording? Yeah, we're I don't recording. Know. Are we still it, recording? Honestly, post this. Post this. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, my one of my favorite parts about starting Islands, my last company, was jamming with Scott Belsky because he invested in the company. We would have these conversations just like the one we had now about where the trends are going and what opportunities exist and more often than not scott is completely on the mark and it's such a pleasure he's such a nice guy um my brain is absolutely spinning with ideas right now uh we had a few good ones so what you know what did you think oh uh, i mean first off just an awesome guy um i had never met him face to face uh and i feel like i was best friends i mean just like he feels like your friend right away crazy smart um to your point at the end i mean i love that he's willing to just like put himself in the intellectual gauntlet i actually found it fascinating at the beginning when we talked through his um his process like how he jots down notes and he's like a compulsive compulsive um like note jotter in his notion doc and then kind of starts to aggregate and synthesize um i'm probably going to implement that this year actually it's just like things i'm observing i'm just going to have one one page where i drop down big observations to try to synthesize i love that he sends it to people and like has people spar with his ideas. That's just such like a cool concept to me. And so interesting. Um, in terms of takeaways, I mean, I had, I had a bunch, um, my biggest, if I had to pinpoint one, I think it's that business idea around, you know, a SaaS platform for like customized hospitality experiences. Um, I think that is fascinating. I'm a little bit shocked that it doesn't already exist, but I think it's like, a brilliant thing you could start at a regional level with a pretty light touch effort, very little, you know, development build out. And honestly, I mean, you could focus, it'd be a huge driver for mom and pops for smaller restaurants, smaller hospitality chains. Um, I think it's really, really interesting. It goes to that mental model of like taking what the highest end premium experiences already do and bringing it to everybody. Um, like that model, that framework of doing business, um, cause the four seasons sort of does this. Like they, once you've gone there, they'll start to pattern what you like, what you don't like, what newspaper, et cetera. And then they provide it to you, but doing that at a scale where smaller mom and pops, um, smaller businesses are able to access and deliver that same set of experiences is an amazing business idea. So I'm like, I'm hooked on that. I want to get into the community and jam on that more. Cause I think there's something super interesting there to be built. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and like we talked about, like 
could start on web two, definitely a web three opportunity there. Also, I loved talking about Wikipedia, by the way, because it was a reminder that, um, you know, if we lost Wikipedia, that would really suck. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that was super amazing. Scott's an idea machine. So, um, I loved it. I'm so glad we got to do it to start the year. I yeah. mean, it's like a great way to frame up the year too and just like start thinking big to start 2022. So for everyone out there, uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we're going to get Scott into the community. We'll go deeper on all of this in the Discord. Um, so, so excited to release this one and, uh, and go further on it. So See thank you all so much for joining. Cheers. The saying used to be, let your game speak. With Common Stock, it's about let your gains speak. I love Common Stock, love the platform, and have really been enjoying learning from other people on there. How does it work? It's a platform for verified investment knowledge. So people are going and sharing their ideas, sharing their trades, but it's actually connected to their brokerage account. So you can see the results they're generating and see their actual track records over time. So you're learning from people, not only the best investors, the Bill Ackmans, the Daniel Loeb's are on there, but also individuals who are actually going and putting their money where their mouth is on these trades, and you're learning alongside them and being taken on the journey. Is it just stocks? There's everything now. There's going to be stocks. There's crypto. We're in this crazy world where there's so many different investment opportunities, which just means there's so many opportunities to learn. And Common Stock is creating the platform for you to learn alongside the best. And also, as I said, let your gains speak. So to level up your investing game today, check out commonstock.com. You won't regret it. Capchase is the financing solution for fast-growing startups. It lets companies access their revenue today so that they can reinvest in their business and grow and scale much quicker than they otherwise would be able to. Is it complex though? No, it's super easy to set up. Only a couple of clicks. You can go through the process so quickly. There's no dilution ever. And if you don't draw on the money, you don't have to pay any interest against it. It's a great solution for fast-growing startups and they should all check it out today. So if you want to go look into it, Go to capchase.com slash room. Join our free community at trwih.com.